Welcome, this is Lisa, where we go inside addiction to raise your level of consciousness. Welcome, Brian, to the Lisa podcast, where we go inside addiction to raise our audience's level of consciousness. Now, you've written some amazing books, and I just wondered if you could start off by just giving us your sort of definition of addiction. Well, um, and, and we're talking about, you know, a, a huge uh, a multidisciplinary, there are many, many types of addiction. But it's really the way I have now grown to think about addiction is when we're living from our survive brain instead of our thrive brain. And what I mean by that is uh, fear uh, in the survive brain, fear, anger, inability to self-regulate, and uh, as a result of that, the need to reach out and find something outside of ourselves to calm down the survive brain, which is hardwired in all of us. Uh, but Mother Nature doesn't care whether we um, are happy. Mother Nature wants us to survive. And uh, when we're not able to connect in our thrive brain, which is compassion, self-love, calm, creativity, confidence, courage, you notice there are a lot of C words there. If we were not able to do that, then addiction becomes a mechanism for the brain to uh, get some kind of comfort. When I talk about addiction, uh, I know there's uh, a lot of ways to talk about addiction, but uh, my specialty is work addiction, which is a true addiction. But uh, I, talk, I think about balance between the thrive brain and the survive brain. That's really what recovery is about. It's uh, learning to, uh, integrity, um, think about others, um, to be able to make amends with other people and with yourself without judgment, but with compassion. Um, and so the 12 steps are really, um, as far as I'm concerned, a good way to think about what the thrive brain is, because that's what it leads you into, a different way of living, a different way of thinking. You know, in, uh, in recovery, we talk about stinking thinking. That's the survive brain. Um, healthy thinking is the thrive brain. Yeah. And like you said about the survive brain, and that's one of the reasons we sort of use a substance or work, all those different things in addiction. And what are some of the ways the survive brain is sort of um, built up during early childhood and how do we kind of get stuck into that as we go into adolescence and sort of adult lives? I didn't hear the first part of the question. Could you repeat it? Yeah, sure. So in our sort of survive brain, how do we get sort of, how is that developed um, from a young age and how do we get stuck in that as we move into adolescence in that survive brain? Well, what happens as we're developing, as kids, uh, we take in the information around us. Now, of course, there's a genetic piece to this that I'm not talking about at this point. Um, but that genetic piece can be played up or played down depending on like a plant. You put a plant in soil and water and sunlight and it's going to thrive, right? Thrive brain. You put that plant... Uh, in sawdust and it doesn't get light and nurturing and attention and it's going to die on the vine or it's going to look strange. Um, and so the environment that we're brought up in 
can either feed the addiction or, or not, but what happens is that um, the survival brain becomes more dominant. Like uh, in my growing up, I grew up in an alcoholic home, and uh, we were on, on red alert all the time. Red alert is, is the survival brain's uh, focus on how am I going to get through this, right? Uh, and you'll notice a lot of people who are in recovery came from homes where we'll, we'll call them dysfunctional families, and I know that's a big broad term, but um, where survival, whether it was um, uh, physical survival or psychological survival, uh, activates your survival brain so that when I was uh, nine years old, my job was to, it wasn't to thrive, it was to take, keep my head above water and take care of my younger sibling uh, so we didn't go down with shit, and that's all about survival. So what happens is something called GIA, G-H-I-A, Global High Intensity Activation, when you're not fully psychologically constructed uh, as a child, then uh, the trauma of what's going on around you um, throws your uh, nervous system in, in haywire. It goes haywire. And uh, for me, uh, my addiction started when I was nine, ten. I wrote the church Christmas play. I directed the church Christmas play. I was the lead actor of Joseph. I um, built all the sets, and everybody thought I was doing great. What I was really doing was starting a course of uh, an addiction to doing of it led me into my adult life and almost killed me because I wasn't able to stop. It's just like uh, you know an alcoholic uh, who can't stop drinking. I couldn't stop working uh, in my early in my career because um, all I thought about was uh, I was a professor at the university. And I was writing, and I was doing community service, and I had a marriage that was dying, and uh, finally did. Um, but all I did was work holidays, weekends, day, night. Sometimes I would wake up in my clothes having thrown a binge, uh, and uh, a work binge. Uh, just like an alcoholic waking up after a, you know, a night out in town. So... Um, so the addiction sticks with us as a way for the your internal nervous system to regulate itself. And of course, what it does is creates another whole problem, which is continuing the addiction. The Thrive Brain, uh, as you learn what it is and, uh, and you're able to move into it, is really what recovery is all about. And that's why spirituality is so important. Helping other people, you know, the 12 step of uh, doing 12 step work uh, really adds to uh, being in, moving into your thrive brain. Yeah. And just as you were talking there about our nervous system, like you say, your addiction to work, I just wondered if you feel like there's any contributing factors to what our kind of drug of choice, if you like, becomes, whether it's sort of heroin or cocaine or food or work. How yeah. do, you, do you feel like there's any factors that contribute to which sort of vice we choose? That's a, that's a hard question to answer. Um, if you look underneath all the things you just named, you start to see the stinking thinking. You start to see which is all or nothing. 
you know, black and white. Um, uh, so underneath all those addictions is a common thread um, of, of self-inadequacy, uh, inability to relate to people or putting your addiction before everything else. Uh, and there's a whole list of those kind of things. Um, it's, there's no, as far as I know, there's no definitive evidence on why some people become addicted to food and some people become addicted to work, except that we know more women tend to be addicted to food and in the past more men have been addicted to work. Um, although that's changing now that more women are, you know, in leadership positions in the work world, we're seeing more women workaholics. Um, so it, it's a hard uh, question to answer uh, because I don't think there's any that I know of really valid research why some people would become addicted to work and some people would become addicted to, say, cocaine or heroin or whatever. Yeah, and like you say, it's kind of all underlying that behaviour is yeah. that same sort of the same stuff and the 12 steps can be applied to any of those different things um, and how do you feel like cross addiction plays a role in all of this if we say if we solve sort of alcohol and drugs in a sense well then we're addicted to work or if we get control of our cocaine addiction but then we have trouble with food how does that kind of how do you see that yeah well that happens you know a lot of people come out of recovery a lot of people i've worked with uh, as patients have, uh, will come out of, say, alcoholism recovery, and then they will cross addictions into work. Um, uh, but so underlying that, there's this uh, often obsessive-compulsive behavior that can be uh, generalized into anything. Uh, addiction is, is just going too far. It's going in the extreme, um, whether it's... Uh, going into work or whether it's going into food or whatever it's, it's just carrying things to, to the extreme and as we say in out in recovery most of us are trying to feel some uh, complete or fill up something inside of ourselves that empty hole that many people will describe and that goes back to your other question of you know something we didn't get emotionally and psychologically uh, growing up and we're trying to fill that up with something to make us feel better. Of course, it doesn't. It creates another whole problem. Yeah. Yeah. And at the beginning, you spoke about sort of genes and how you can place a plant in different environments, and the environment plays a big role. But I wonder what role you felt like uh, your genes or genetics played in addiction. Well, you know, when we look at the uh, intergenerational um, transmission of addiction, I can look back and see on my dad's side that my grand, his mother, I think, probably had a food addiction. She was obese. He uh, was clearly addicted to alcohol. He died of cirrhosis of the liver. He was a classic alcoholic. And then for me, uh, it became my work. And I have a sister, and for her, it became food. So a lot of times we switch addictions from one generation to the next. Uh, so there probably is some kind of genetic predisposition. You know, if you're a male uh, alcoholic or, or a, male, a male son of an alcoholic, uh, the research shows you're five times uh, more likely to 
become an alcoholic, I think we could probably say you're probably five times more likely to become addicted to something. It may not be alcohol, but something else. And the addiction, uh, a lot of people don't understand work addiction. They tease about it. They laugh about it. They, they uh, make fun of it. But um, uh, I just want your listeners to know uh, that I have been there and I, I know how uh, debilitating it is um, and I know how similar it is to alcoholism and other addictions. Um, I have people who sneak work and I did it when my family would complain and we would go to the beach and uh, they would say, let's go walk on the beach and I would say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rest and I call this work infidelity. Uh, and so while they were gone, I pulled out my project from the university and worked feverishly, just like an alcohol sneaking drinks. And in fact, I had sneaked the, the work down to the beach because my family started going through to make sure I didn't take work with me. And I would sneak it in my jeans or under the spare tire in the car, uh, which, as I say it now, sounds sick. Uh, and it was. Um, but uh, it, I, I just want people to know that it destroys the workaholism, it kills. Uh, the Japanese have a name for it, it's called Kuroshi. We don't have a word for it in our in the English culture. Um, we just call it workaholism. And uh, my goal has been to bring the stigma to it like we have stigma to other addictions. And people still tease about it and make jokes about it. Yeah. Yeah, and I think almost that sense of busyness is almost like a badge of honour in a sense when people say, oh, what are you up to? You're like, oh, I'm so busy. As if there's something to be proud of, that's really good. Oh, I must be successful because I'm busy. And I just yeah. wonder what your thoughts were just on the word busyness. Yeah, busyness, hurrying, rushing. It's one of the symptoms, uh, multitasking, trying to do two, three, four things at once. Uh, yeah, um, I was going to mention something else about what you just asked me. Um, but, the, but busyness and hurry, I mean, a lot of us do that. It's it, 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 it one of those symptoms. Uh, hours, the hours of work is not um, alone the, the definition of a workaholism because you can be, it, you can be lying on, on the beach and working in your head. So it's the inability to turn it off. It's the inability, just like an alcoholic, thinking about at the end of the day, five o'clock, I'm going to have a drink, I can't wait, it's all I'm thinking about. It's, uh, it's similar in that you are working, you're in your survive brain working, you're not in your, the thrive brain is relaxing, it's resting to just instead of the gas of uh, doing and getting something done. And so... Um, the busyness uh, gives, by the way, an adrenaline rush. It's not just about, you know, well, aren't I great? I can accomplish it. It's really more about uh, feeding my nervous system so I feel good. So if I can do three or four things at once and get them all accomplished, I feel this rush, which is a high. And there's also a, a period of withdrawal from that, of restlessness. Yeah, the inability to relax, the inability to sit still, the inability to rest your mind creates more stress when you're workaholic. Yeah, and in your books you talk about four different types of um, work addiction. I just wondered if you could, yeah, give us a bit of an idea of what those four types are. Well, 
there's the relentless workaholic, and that would describe me uh, the way I used to be. And that's someone who, if you tell them, you know, we have a deadline two months, they will start now or tomorrow. And they will self-impose stress as if the deadline is uh, in a day or two. Um, there's the um, savoring workaholic who, um, and a lot of people can identify uh, or know, probably has worked with someone like this. This is the person who savors their work like uh, an alcoholic would savor a shot of bourbon. They don't want to let it go. They hold on to it. They cling to it. When everybody's waiting for something, they seem to be dragging the feet, uh, but it takes them forever to get uh, a project on to the next level. So uh, I call those, uh, they're perfections, uh, right? And, and uh, they're crossing their T's and dotting their I's, and everything has to be perfect. Um, but yet, uh, it's never perfect enough. And so they, they just have trouble letting it go, which is kind of the opposite of the relentless workaholic. Yeah. And then there's the ADD workaholic who, um, these are often people who can't focus. And uh, the way they will often get their focus, and it's unwitting, they don't, they're not consciously doing this, they don't know it until it's uh, observed by an outsider, like a mental health person, to, to tell them. But they will often create a crisis uh, to, so they can focus because the adrenaline in a crisis, uh, and these are usually small things like a little shortage of paper clips in the office. Uh, it, it can be something very minor. It may throw a fit, and then the adrenaline helps them focus on the project at hand, and they get it done. Yeah, and I think that's really interesting. Those different yeah types of yeah work addicts. And yeah. how do you feel like, um, or is there any physical symptoms that are sort of manifested from work addiction? Well, the, 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 some of the physical uh, side effects are um, a foggy brain, inability to concentrate, um, heart disease, uh, because when you are hooked on adrenaline and the cortisol that goes with it, of trying to complete a deadline that's unrealistic, which is self-imposed, um, your body then develops a, pl a plaque from the adrenaline cortisol over time. And so there's a correlation between heart disease and heart attacks and uh, people who are type A or workaholics. Um, gastrointestinal issues, all the stress symptoms uh, go with uh, workaholism because workaholics are working from the survive brain, which is the gas, uh, and recovery is about the thrive brain, which is the brakes. Um, and so when you're working from uh, the, the stress, you're driven, which means you're uh, either you're self-imposing these, these uh, pressures or... Uh, there's some deadlines that your boss or someone else is putting upon you, but you're driven by an outside force, either your self-talk or a, a person or a company outside of you. If you're in your thrive brain, you're drawn. And, and what that means is it, that comes from inside out, not outside in. And when you're drawn, this is true of any addiction, uh, you're calmer, 
you're not allowing some outside force to control how fast you move or what you think. Uh, you're steady. You're clearer. Um, so the, the contrast between uh, someone who's living the life of their thrive brain and and survive brain is uh, like day and night. Yeah. And would you say there's any kind of tools or techniques or anything that we can use to get from the sort of um, survive, survive brain into the thrive brain? Yes, there's, uh, you know, uh, workaholics at least, but you don't have to be a workaholic to uh, have a um, to-do list. And just the whole idea of a to-do list keeps you stuck in your survive brain of doing. And so I advocate a to-be list. And when I suggest that to workaholics, they don't even know what that means, you know, where, where to even start with that. So I have to give examples, like sitting and watching the grass grow. And, of course, that can bring up a lot of anxiety for a workaholic. Uh, going on a vacation and instead of working, just enjoy the beauty around you and paying attention. Really being in the present moment, that's the thrive brain. Instead of uh, workaholics, where the survival brain is in the future, uh, worrying about what is going to happen or uh, in the past, uh, upset about what's already happened. In your thrive brain, you're in the present moment, and you're in your body, and you're paying attention to what's going on around you and the people that are with you. Um, so, yeah, well, you say the idea of coming back to presence, um, being present in the present moment. And like you said, even the idea that when you say to people, watch the grass grow, they're going to be anxious, they're going to be sort of hopping on their seat, they're not going to be able to sit still, it's going to be yeah. difficult to sort of slow everything down and return to that kind of slow pace of right. life and just appreciating the beauty and, yeah. and managing those mental thoughts. That's um, right. Yeah, and I wondered if you had any experience with mindfulness or meditation or if you recommend any of those kind of tools to help clients. Well, absolutely. In my book, Hashtag Chill, um, this, and it's for anybody, it's not just for workaholics, it's for anybody who wants to slow down and be more in the present moment. It's really based on mindfulness, and um, I have what are called micro-chillers, and these are things you can do in five minutes or less. Uh, that if you do, let's say if you spend five minutes a day, uh, or, or more, but just five minutes, um, of doing one of these micro chillers, it will change your life. If, if you do it regularly, uh, it, it, it definitely will change your life. And it will put you in your thrive brain. You will feel more uh, in charge of your life, whether you're, if you are a recovering alcoholic or um, cocaine addict or food addict or whatever. Uh, all these micro chillers uh, are really part of uh, uh, moving you into your thrive brain. Of course, the 12 steps do that, too, in a, in a different way. The microchillers are more internal. I'll give you an example. One of the things I ask people to do uh, to move from the survive brain to the thrive brain is make a list of your tall comings. Well, there's no such word as tall comings. I made it up. But we know about shortcomings, right? That's shortcomings, that's survive brain. It's the negative. So if you uh, make a list of your tall comings, then it starts to balance out how you think of yourself. And that's hard for people to do, but uh, that, that's the point to do it, is our negative list or shortcomings tends to be longer than the list of the tall comings, but that's, that's the work. So uh, we're talking about 
The dry brain is lifelines, the survive brain is deadlines. So you can see uh, it's, it's just learning to be more in, in, to flip it a little bit and be more into slowing down, uh, making re reasonable uh, deadlines or lifelines instead of unreasonable. Um, and so that's how you move from one to the other. But I want to give you an example of just, uh, oh, the other thing I want to mention is um, the survive brain, if you think of a camera, it's what I call the zoom lens of a camera. Uh, because Mother Nature wires, if there's a threat out there, you have to pinpoint it. And so what happens is your brain goes into this uh, zoom, you focus on the threat, and it clouds out everything else. Um, and so that can be a physical threat or it can be a psychological threat, the fear of losing your job. Uh, let's say, as an example, if you're afraid of losing your job, uh, the zoom lens uh, causes you to ruminate and to worry and to, it clouds out all the positive stuff. Uh, we call that the negativity bias. That's what scientists call it. And we're wired more to think negatively than positively. So pessimism is the survive brain. Optimism is the thrive brain. Now, we need our survive brain to survive, but to live fully, it would require us having the, the thrive brain. So one example would be if all the listeners after this is over take one minute and just sit and listen to all the sounds around them. It could be uh, the air conditioning. It could be voices in another room. It could be ambient noise outside like an airplane going over. It could be their gurgling stomach. Don't try to memorize them. Just notice as many as you can. And then after you're through, go inside, just look inside, and notice your heart rate slows down, your breathing slows down, your muscles loosen, because what just happened is you activated your thrive brain. And that's biology, that's neuroscience. Uh, because you brought yourself into your body, you're not thinking about worrying about the future or thinking about the past. You're in the present moment. And the more present we can teach our brain to be, the less addictive we're going to be, the less, the calmer we'll be, the less we need something outside of us to fill that hole up. Yeah. And like you say, that sense of just being in the moment, being yeah. present, and noticing that physiological. Uh, response of yeah. you know going from that fight and flight response into a state of uh, coherence um, and being in that state of coherence in your body um, is really good and yeah I'm reading your book hashtag chill at the moment um, I'm coming towards the end of all it's excellent so I do recommend everyone get, gets a copy because it is just great even um, yeah if you've been through any other kind of recovery or you're thinking of getting in recovery one thing I particularly liked about it is how you interweave your sort of methodology with the different chapters of the year and with the 12 steps. Um, so right. it's always really good. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, there are 12 chapters, and each chapter is based on one of the steps. And it's also based on one of the seasons of the year. I correlate the season of the year, the month, as you just said, with, uh, with the steps, which was kind of fun to do. Well, I thought it was brilliant. And for our um, listeners to find out more about you, find out where to get the book, um, where can people go, where do you want people to go to find out more about you? Uh, RyanRobinsonBooks.com, and that's B-R-Y-A-N, 
R-O-B-I-N-S-O-N, books.com. And there's a test uh, look on there where they can, uh, folks can uh, take, it's called the chill test. And it will be electronically scored, and you can see how chill you are or are not. And um, no matter what you're recovering from, the, the ability to slow down and relax and to chill more is, uh, is really part of our anybody's recovery. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, just to quickly touch on that test, I, I, when I did it myself, actually, when I was on your website, I thought it was really interesting. Uh, my girlfriend was sitting next to me just nodding like this. Um, so it was very enlightening. Um, and, yeah, I de- definitely recommend everyone go and check it out. And um, we'll link down to your book and to the test and all that kind of stuff below. And, yeah, thank you very much for, for coming on the show. Thank you, Luke. It's my pleasure. Cheers. As always, thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode please share and I really wish you well on your journey to serenity.